Why become a Christian? Why should you become a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? At Embassy Church, we believe that people who are Christians biblically become Christians. They're not born Christian. We believe that it's a decision that one makes to repent of sin and believe. But why do it? Oftentimes, as I've observed, and listen to people, people become Christians because they want help from God or the Bible. Perhaps they have a problem in their life, an addiction to some sort of vice, a relationship problem with family, friends, work. They have trouble with money, you name it. A problem drives one to hopelessness, despair. They've tried everything else, and so they come to the end and say, let's give God a try. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? God giving grace to help you in your time of need and problems that you face. Well, absolutely, of course, this is what God does for Christians and for many that are not Christians. His grace is specific to believers, and it is common to all. But what we must understand is that the grace that is specific to Christians is more than a little help with your felt needs or your personal goals. Specific saving grace, becoming a Christian, is not to help you become the best version of you that you had in mind. Oh no, the gospel, the message of the Bible, Christianity in a nutshell, offers you something better than help. It offers you hope. It offers you a new life, new goals. It makes you new. Do you see the difference between these two things? One version of the Christian life would look like I have goals to get over some hurdle. Christianity is going to help me get over that hurdle. Is it a good hurdle that I should get over? Maybe, maybe not. I want to be more successful in my business, so I'm going to use Christianity to help me be more successful and more greedy. That's not Christianity. I want to use Christianity to find a mate and meet someone for love because my main idol and goal in life is love with another human on the earth. That's not the goal of Christianity. The gospel does not simply take you where you're at in this world as a non-Christian and then say, come to Jesus. I'll make you a better version of the former you. It gives Radical grace of new goals for a new heart, a new kind of person. Probably the best description of this that I've ever read is from a man that used to preach in the gospel in the Chicagoland area, a gospel preacher named A.W. Tozer. He's passed away, but in one of his writings, he wrote the following, and this is decades ago, 
See how relevant this is if you observe the general Christian preaching that you might listen to. Tozer writes, quote, All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in our modern times a new way of preaching the cross of Christ. It sounds a lot like the old, but it's different. This new way of preaching employs the same language, but the content and the emphasis is not the same. The cross in this new way of preaching, it does not slay sinners. It just redirects them. For instance, to the self-assertive, it says, come to Jesus, assert yourself for Christ. To a thrill seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrills of the Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thinking, it may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. You see, the cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt and the violent end of a person. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him to new life. As Jesus taught, the corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. And only then will God bestow life, but not an improvement of the old way of life, a new life altogether, end quote. Another way to summarize what I just read to you, the bad news of the cross, it is far worse than most people imagine. But the good news of the new life promised and offered and provided in the cross is far greater than you could ever dare dream. When we come to Christ, we first die, then we're raised. Peter's thesis statement in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 states that the sufferings of Christ come first, then subsequent glories. Sufferings, then glory. Death, then resurrection, exaltation. Not an improved old life, a radically different new life. So, if your Bibles aren't turned there yet, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. My hope is that as we read God's word together, you will see the end goal of the Christian life. The purpose for becoming a Christian. I think our text will provide that and much, much more. Follow along as I read. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, 
as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. And my prayer is that you will understand the goal of the Christian life, why you should become a Christian if you're not, and why you are one if you are. In a sentence, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, can be summarized in the following manner. God's grace and salvation provides the needed grace to serve and to suffer for the end goal of the glory of God. Let me say that one more time. In one sentence, the passage I just read teaches us that God's grace in salvation provides the needed grace to serve and to suffer for the end goal of God's glory. I think it would be useful if we just work through those three segments. Number one, God's grace in salvation. Point one will be God's grace in salvation. Point two, God's grace and salvation provides the grace needed to serve and to suffer. Point three, all toward what end? What's the goal? What's the purpose? Why are we a Christian? Why are you here? It's rainy outside. Why don't you sleep in? The glory of God. First, point one, God's grace in salvation. Verse seven starts with this phrase. The end of all things is at hand. And that, my friends, is where I get the idea. God's grace in salvation. The end of all things is at hand might, on the surface, sound like the end of the world. It's coming at any moment. I don't know if any of you are aware, but there's a sky that I don't even know if he's alive anymore, but Harold Camping has predicted again and again, the world's going to end, and he actually gives you a day. Just Google search Harold Camping, end of the world. This kind of fanaticism of the end of the world being at hand and predictions for the end of the world is all over the place through the years of people teaching the Bible. I would like to distance myself not only from Harold Camping, but from the interpretation that this text is really about the end of the world. Peter is talking about the end of God's plan of salvation. The end is near. Karen Jobes, in her excellent commentary of 1 Peter, translates it this way. The consummation of all things is near. The consummation of what things? The consummation, the culmination, the end goal, the climax of what God is doing in the world, it's right around the corner. That's what Peter starts off by saying. And in fact, it kind of points us backwards to the verses that we were looking at last week. Look again down at your text and let's remind ourselves that what Peter just said really corresponds well with what he's saying in verse 7. Specifically, look at verse 4. With respect to these drinking parties and sensual passions and drunkenness and orgies, all these things that you as a Christian have said, I do not want to do that anymore. 
The non-Christian Gentiles of the Roman Empire are surprised when you do not join them in this same flood of debauchery, and then they'll, they'll tease you, they'll make fun of you, they'll malign you for your failure to participate in these practices. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. None other than Jesus Christ, the one who's seated on the throne. Look up at verse 22. Christ, who's ascended into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and everyone in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth is subjected to his authoritative rule. They will give an account to King Jesus. Those who have already died and those who are living, everyone in the universe, dead or alive, angel, demon, spirit, human, you are accountable to King Jesus. Verse 6, for this is why the good news of the gospel was preached even to those, and then this is the translation of who are already currently dead. People who were Christians and then died received the gospel. That's why they have hope, and this is what he explains. Those who heard the gospel, received it, and then died, already now currently dead, Though they were judged by the humans in the world by their flesh the way everyone else is, oh, they live in the spirit the way God does. Summary statement. Peter just talked about the end, the judgment, the coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. So then, verse 7, God's plan of salvation. It's almost complete. The last mile of the 26.2 marathon miles is the final stretch. You're in mile number 25. The creation in Genesis has occurred. The flood story is over and he will never wipe out the earth with the flood again. The promise made to Abraham. The covenants made to Moses, the law given at Mount Sinai as a tutor to teach what the people of God should look like, the king on the throne of the throne of David, and the establishment of a temple in Jerusalem, all that's already taken place. It's like you've already run the first half marathon. The Old Testament's over. Then Jesus Christ has been born of a woman, a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life. The true Israelite who went through the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food and he was not tempted by the serpent to give in to his temptation. Unlike Israel, unlike Adam, the better, the greater David, the better, the greater Moses, the better, the greater everyone. Jesus lived on this earth, walked and died an innocent death that he did not deserve. All that's already happened. He was buried in the grave for three days and then rose again from the dead. He then, after 40 days, ascended into heaven and now is seated at the right hand of God. How much has already taken place in God's plan of salvation? Answer, almost all of it. The light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter. What left is there in God's plan of salvation? Does the Messiah need to come for the first time? No, already happened. Does he need to pay a sacrifice for sins? Nope, once and for all, chapter 3, verse 18, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's done. It's already happened. We don't need to wait for another high priest to atone for sins. Brothers and sisters, guests, do you understand Peter's point? In God's grand plan, of salvation, there is one thing left, the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. That 
is the basis of his exhortations for the rest of our section. The end, the consummation, the last little step. It's the last step of God's plan. It's the last mile of the marathon. Therefore, do you see the relationship? God's grace in his plan of salvation is almost fully complete. You're almost there, guys. Don't give up hope. Therefore, and that undergirds everything our text says. So, let's remember that the big idea of today's message is God's grace in salvation is the undergirding that provides and motivates and pushes and fuels all that he is calling us to in verses 7 to 11. So point two. God's grace in salvation provides the needed grace to serve and to suffer. I want you to see that this is what Peter is doing in this text. He is telling you that because of what God has already done in salvation history, you have right now at your disposal all the grace that will be needed to live the Christian life and finish strong because the end, it's sometime around the corner, but it is the last stage in the steps of salvation. And that grace that you will need to do two very difficult things, serve others instead of yourself and suffer is expressly what he is saying. And so I want to point that out to you. You summarize this middle section. It's serve and suffer. Let's read the text one more time. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, on the basis of God's grace in his plan of salvation, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So notice, praying in a certain manner, loving, hospitality without grumbling. All then are specific examples of where he's driving this specific message. Verse 10, and as each of you has received a gift, use it to, and there's first, serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. And then he summarizes the grace of God in serving. There's two kinds of ways to serve. You can serve in verse 11 by speaking as one who speaks God's words, the oracles of God. Or you can serve by serving with your hands, but serving only by the strength that God supplies. In order to speak, you need God's word if you're going to encourage anybody. Your words, a little bit of encouragement, maybe, sometimes unhelpful, a lot of times unhelpful. God's word, always helpful, always encouraging, always building up. So if you want to serve with your mouth, be word-centered in the scriptures. If you want to serve with your hands, do so with such a self-sacrificial love that you're willing to overlook sins, serve people that aren't very thankful about it, and you're not grumbling, you're not complaining, you're not resentful. They didn't clean up after themselves when I invited them over to my house. Do you know how long I stayed up doing dishes? Not one person even asked, not even said thank you. He's asking you to not even consider that as an option. Serve. Self-sacrificial laying down of one's life. Serving with your hands. Serving with your lips. And that summarizes really all of the serving of the Christian life. So, the gospel 
plan of salvation, provides grace. Is that explicit enough to you, just reading the text? He supplies the stewardship of various gifts for God's grace to enable you to serve. Serve with your lips and serve with your hands. The word gifts is the same word that Ryan read for us in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the word for spiritual gifts, charisma. Not like a charismatic person. The spirits working inside of a person to have the grace of God to supply them with the ability to speak the words of God and to serve for the people of God. And so notice these three examples. As we think about serving first, we're going to mention suffering in just a second. But first, serving. First, prayer. Second, forgiveness. Third, hospitality. Just briefly tease this out. What does it look like to let the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace that's offered in the ascended Lord pouring out his spirit to enable you to first pray in a self-controlled and in a sober-minded manner? It's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of my prayers. If you are not in tune with the reality of what is going on in God's understanding of the world, you won't pray. If you are, to use the language he uses, intoxicated and drunk with the world's news and not the good news of the gospel, you won't pray. If you are not self-controlled, but you keep nibbling day after day in things that serve your flesh, you won't pray. You'll be self-reliant. You'll be content or happy with what's going on in your life. What do you need God for? I'm happy. I got billions of hours of TV in my phone pocket. If I want to soothe myself, I can just go to a bottle of alcohol, turn to a friend to just meet up and talk. Instead, to turn to God. The gospel, the plan of salvation, God's grace in salvation, it's like getting sober. Sober from the intoxication of the world and all of its fleeting pleasures. When you realize that it's soon, it's not far off, it's soon that you will die and face judgment. It's soon that Christ will return. It's the last step that can awaken this, we should pray, we need help. Dependence upon God is very much a direct correlation between your understanding of where you're at in the gospel and God's ability to provide all that you need. Friends, be encouraged. This is an encouragement. Not like a beat you down, you don't pray enough, Embassy Church. Be encouraged. There is grace that is pouring out from heaven because the Son of God has already conquered sin, Satan, and death. Do you need help with sin? That grace is at your disposal. Do you need help with a lost person in your family or friend or coworker, friend circles? Then come and call upon the name of the Lord. He has promised much 
grace, grace upon grace is how John says it in John chapter 1. But if you're intoxicated with the world, if you're not living a self-controlled, disciplined life, and you're just kind of going with the flow, you're just not going to pray. Second example he gives is love. And it's debated how precisely to interpret it, and so just for the sake of simplicity and clarity, I'm just going to take the interpretation that there's a kind of way of forgiving people, covering over sin. And again, you could say prayer is a kind of speaking to God. Love covering a multitude of sins is a kind of speaking to one another, I forgive you because I love you. You sinned against me. You deserve retribution. You deserve punishment. But instead, I'm going to give you a hug. Instead, I'm not going to treat you the way you deserve. Love one another sincerely, earnestly. In my household, we try and teach our kids that when they harm one another, say you're sorry. Sorry. It's not the kind of love that Jesus models and not the kind of love that Peter commands. Earnest, sincere, brother, sister, I love you. It hurt what you did to me, but I forgive you because Jesus Christ forgave me. And there is nothing that you could do that would make me not want to be able to forgive you. That, you need grace for that. And the promise is that the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, teaches, encourages, enables forgiveness. So we can speak forgiveness to one another. And then finally, hospitality. And without grumbling. Don't forget that little line, without grumbling. I love that he added that little line. But I also love that of the list of things, you might assume, okay, prayer makes sense. The Christian life. Prayer, love one another, have each other in each other's homes. Whoa, really? Is that your top three, Peter? And I'm not necessarily saying that's what he is, but how central to you is hospitality? Is it an option? Is it a side thing for a few people? It's a kind of normal way that people live their lives as Christians. Well, one way to answer that question is to just remember that there is a time period that this Bible that we're reading from is written in, and they did not have Motel 6 anywhere. There is not the ability for Christians to go from place to place and deliver the very letter we're reading without somebody saying, hey, you can stay at my place. But what if you've never met this person? Many times, these people didn't even know each other. That's why at the end of several of these letters, there's like, hey, and so-and-so, I commend them to you. Please love them and care for them. Hospitality was necessary and essential for the spread of the gospel in the New Testament early church. You might say that it's not as necessary today, but I wouldn't want to go too far down that road. I think that it is necessary for us to truly live out the New Testament calling by opening up our lives to one another. And if we're not doing that by welcoming people into our homes, no matter how messy or how clean you are, come in. I do not need to put on a show in order to be a Christian. I can welcome you in and you can see all my mess in my heart and in my home. And we can live 
in love toward one another because of the gospel. Really? A little mess in your living room is going to keep you from love and grace being poured out? The end of all things is near. For all of eternity, you can have the better, superior home that God is preparing for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think much about that home and think little about storing up treasures here on earth and widely open up your life and your home for the sake of service. Oh, brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, at this point of my sermon preparation, I thought, all right, I've probably done enough exhortation. I just really want everyone to feel encouraged, like blessed, not just do this, do this, do this. And I specifically thought this. Prayer, forgiveness, hospitality. Can we grow in those things? Sure. But nine plus years of serving as your pastor, I am not looking at this text or you all in the pew right now and thinking, we need to get it together. What's wrong with you guys? Nobody's having anybody over. I am so encouraged that just this week, there was such a flurry of activity all week long. Xavier Torres was in town, and person after person is hosting them in their house overnight. Xavier needed a car, and I had a conversation with a church member who was like, hey, that, that bulletin announcement, it's been in there for several weeks. Maybe we should pull some money together and help him get a rental car. And then, just in the nick of time, someone calls up and says, I'll lend him my car. And these are just little things, but isn't it awesome the way the extraordinary, amazing grace of the gospel provides the grace needed for every little thing you need every day to serve in a local church? So look at what you have and be thankful that God has blessed you with whatever that gift of grace is and use it for serving the kingdom and embassy. Keep it up. We don't just have one prayer meeting at 1015 downstairs where we gather each week praying for the needs of the church. We don't just have another prayer meeting on Wednesday night at 630 before the Wednesday Bible study, but we have two different community groups on Tuesday, another one on Thursday, and then there's another group of people that are like, we need more prayer in the church. For the sake of your prayers, be sober-minded and self-controlled about the reality that the kingdom of God is almost done all that needs to be done. And pray fervently, come, Lord Jesus, come. And embassy, keep it up. I'm not thinking about this text and thinking like, we're zero out of three. We're shooting the three-pointer and we're missing all of them. Sure, we're not shooting 100%, but by God's grace, this church is, I believe, faithfully living out their calling of praying with a sober mind and a self-controlled heart loving one another, and forgiving each other. So finally, in this second point, I mentioned that God's grace that you need to serve one another is rooted in the gospel of God's grace in salvation. I hope that that's clear to you. And I hope you're encouraged to press on, to not grow weary in doing good, and pray, and serve, and forgive. But there is one more detail that we must mention before we close down with point three. The word varied, varied grace. 
Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Seems like a, an ordinary kind of normal word. What's the big deal, Pastor Phil? It points us to suffering. The word varied here is multicolored. Look around the room, everyone. Do you see the decor inside this building? Stained glass? Kaleidoscope of colors in the windows? That's the word. It's God's multicolored kaleidoscope of grace. How rich is that? Just pause for a second. How rich is it that it's not just, oh, God gives grace because he forgave you of your sin. No, it's kaleidoscope of grace for various needs, for various gifts, for various people. Everything that you could need to serve him, he gives. Amen? And to suffer. Where does our text point to suffering? Well, first of all, the whole book points to suffering. But the word multicolored appears one other time in this book. Turn to chapter 1. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by multicolored various trials. Do you see the link? that Peter just made in chapter 4 about the end of all things. Guys, God has accomplished a lot already in the plan of salvation and everything that you could need to serve him, it's there. It's multicolored. But everything that you need, when necessary, that you must endure intense, severe trials, the grace is there as well. I don't think it's a random coincidence that he uses this word two times and the first time is to say, there will be trials. There will be suffering, and there will be a multicolored dimension of all kinds of suffering. And as I look around the room, every single week, I look around and I see faces of a varied, multicolored situations of suffering. And the reason I come up week after week is because I am confident that the gospel of God's grace will provide the needed grace for your suffering, for your suffering, for your suffering, for your trials and your temptations and your need to serve the church. All of it. Otherwise, I don't think we should come back next week. I don't think we should be a Christian. I don't think there's any reason to. The whole point of being a Christian is to be willing to suffer and serve like Jesus because we believe in glory. Suffering first, then glory. And both suffering and serving is very, very difficult and it needs grace. But the hope we have is not that the present, current circumstances are going to get a little better and then we might have a nice retirement, and then we die, and then that's it. The hope we have is that entering and breaking into human history is the man, Jesus Christ, who died, suffered, served, and then was raised, which inaugurated the final stages of God's plan of salvation, of grace, and all of this. 
every grace you receive right now in a sermon, every grace you receive in a prayer that was prayed earlier, every grace you receive from a friend reaching out and texting you, I love you, I care about you, how are you doing? Every grace is for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Point three, for the goal of what? For the goal of the glory of God. Is that super clear in our text? I think so. Super clear. Verse 11, whoever speaks, speak the oracles of God. Whoever serves, serve with the strength that God supplies. Speak God's word and serve with God's strength, with God's grace, so that in order that everything you do, whether word or deed, do it all to the glory of God through Jesus Christ, because to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We exist as Embassy Church. This is our mission statement slogan, in case you were wondering. Why does embassy exist? Oh, here it is. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. I know it's not there in the print, but I'd like to put an emphatic exclamation point. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ. How? By serving one another and being willing to suffer as a disciple who follows Jesus Christ. And we do this until all the nations of the world are reached, or as Peter says it, to the actual end end comes. That's why we're here. So, why should you become a Christian? Are any of you here today, and we've not met, and you're not a Christian? I'm glad you're here. My hope is that this sermon will be especially clear to you. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to die to your small, pathetic, little, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, they just are. In, in the grand scheme of reality, your goals and visions for this short, temporary, let's say you live 80, 90 years, in the grand scheme of history, you will be a blip that no one will remember, and your goals on the earth will be nothing compared to the grand scheme of just human history, but let alone the history of God. So die to those goals. Let the cross of Christ liquidate you so that through this death, you will be raised as a new person with new goals, the goal of the glory of God. And see, test it out. You have to. You have to take a step. You can't just take my word for it. Have the courage and the boldness to take a step and say, will serving God for his glory actually be the better way to live than what I've been doing? I've got 80-some people around the room that can testify it's better. The greatest joys in this world, Christian or not, are self-forgetfulness. When you feel small and everything around you feels big. The glory of a concert, the glory of a majestic landscape. When you feel small, your joy grows big. We exist to increase your joy so that you will live for the greatest grandeur and glory that ever exists, the glory of Jesus Christ. In case you were wondering, how glorious is the glory of Jesus Christ? He who knew no sin became sin for you. He who was an innocent sufferer with full self-control, while suffering varied, multicolored sufferings on a cross. He sober-mindedly prayed, Father, 
forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. How much glory is there in gazing at Christ on the cross, praying for the very people that are murdering him? How about the idea that he forgave every one of your sins against him because love of staying on the cross, even when he had at his disposal every angel in the army of heaven and he could have wiped out the Roman Empire, but his hanging on the cross meant love. Love covers all sin. How much glory is there in just conjuring up in your imagination this beautiful picture? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon me, for I am gentle and lowly. I want to give you rest at my table because the cross that I endured was to invite you into my home. The most hospitable person that's ever walked this earth who will bring in the most sleazy and despisable and despicable people into their home and not grumble for a second is none other than Jesus Christ. It's glorious. It's the model, but it's also the means by which when you gaze with self-forgetfulness, he did that for you. Receive it, Christian, as grace flowing from heaven now so you can serve and suffer to the glory of his name. Let's pray in his name now. Oh, Heavenly Father, what wonderful things that you have revealed to us in just these few short verses. Thank you for your word, the oracles of God. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the word that has become flesh, that in case some of us struggle with interpreting texts or reading books, we know. We can know that the message of the entire Bible is being summed up and articulated in the person of Christ. Thank you for the plan of salvation. Thank you for his forgiveness. The forgiveness that was purchased and redeemed and bought and paid for. Thank you for the greatest and not even close to a second place. Thank you for the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever witnessed and the very reason why countless millions, billions of people have gazed at the cross and the love and seen glory and had their hearts changed and gave up their small, pitiful dreams for earthly glory and got swallowed up in the heavenly glory of Jesus. Father, would you do that to us? Would you renew the Christians in this room, reminding them, this is why we're a Christian. This is our calling. This is who we are. This is why we came to the cross in the first place. This is why we're members of this church. And pour out your spirit on anyone here today whose hearts are hardened to this idea. Would you use grace? Would you use the generosity of Jesus to soften hearts 
so that we would clearly know and understand that if we reject Jesus, if we reject the gospel, we're rejecting supreme love that has never been seen. What foolishness. But furthermore, if we reject Jesus, we're rejecting the greatest option for joy that could be had now and for all of eternity, even in the face of multicolored, varied suffering. Oh God, sober us up. Help us think clearly right now as we pray. We need your grace. Come, Jesus, come. Come in this room, come in our hearts. Meet us in this hour. We pray all this in Jesus' name to his glory and praise. Amen.